We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We have a full episode today of conversation around a lot of big topics in a short week for the Browns, including an opening with Andrew Spade where we go through how the offense has to shift, like the running back decision they could be making, who might come in, who might be worth the time, uh, where the offense goes to accommodate a lot of these changes, sort of Stefanski's MO here, and, and really what would cause us some concern as well, mixed in with a little bit of Andrew's thoughts about overreactions and overconfidence from that game that we just witnessed on Monday night, and there's just a lot here, and then we get an all-22 com- all comprehensive breakdown at the end of that opening segment as well. So a lot of great information here on your latest OBR film breakdown. All right, guys, what's up? Welcome in. It's myself. It's Andrew Spade. We're going through uh, the opening because there's news surrounding the Browns uh, as these uh, comprehensive podcasts come out that we need to just have some some banter on. And uh, I really want to get Andrew's opinion because we didn't get a chance to check in with him after the game um, about it. Right. So, you know, it's 26, 22 final. The you know, my opinion of the Pittsburgh Steelers is exactly what it was before the game. It hasn't altered. That the fact that the Browns gave away 13 points, it took to lose that game because you only lost by four. It took some historic stuff, you know, Pittsburgh not gaining anything positive in the fourth quarter despite going into it down three and winning. Uh, there's a lot of this century labels that have been thrown into this game. It happens every year. You know, week two trauma of last year with the Jets turns into week two trauma this year. Uh, I don't think you can call any one more <laughs> traumatic than the other. Uh, just the, the fact that I think that sits so heavy over this game, Andrew, is is what happened to Nick. And, yeah. you know, you can you can talk yourself through being all right in a lot of different ways. And then, you know, l- let me let me phrase what I'm trying to say this way. Is there any heavier injury? I mean, I know Miles my- is really important, mm-hmm. but there's something about Nick Chubb that yeah. is uh, it's just always. For, for good or bad here, because, you know, people like their superstars to just be these do exactly what you're supposed to do types. And I, that's never right. really rubbed me the right way. But mm-hmm. Nick is there's nothing phony about how Nick is. I don't think he's out there trying to please people by doing the things the way he does them. I don't I don't think there's any of that. He just this is who the guy is. And um, it is it is certainly sitting like um, 
like a like a weight like a weighted vest over the thoughts you have surrounding a game like this so yeah uh, yeah it's a rough it's a rough one the pittsburgh stigma in pittsburgh lives on and i will open the floor to you to give some of your initial reactions to what you saw consumed and um go <laughs> carried with you to, to bed that night yeah i mean it was you know unpleasant i think from top to bottom uh I, you know, the thing that really struck me about it was, was just how I keep, you know, getting to a point of not expecting that sort of stuff. I, I don't know how it continues to surprise me. Uh, because as soon as that ball bounces off a of Harrison Bryant and lands in Minka Fitzpatrick's lap and then gets jarred loose, but doesn't like hit the ground, right? Or mm-hmm. trickle out of bounds or, you know, pop back into Harrison Bryant's hands for a for a first down, it pops up in the air, like like it's been lobbed gently to the only guy to whom, if it was lobbed to him, he could easily run it in for a touchdown. That, like, we take this stuff for granted as Browns fans because it happens so routinely. But the chances of that happening are infinitesimal. It's a it's an oblong ball for it to pop out of there. Like a like a piece of popcorn and nestle into his arms so easily he didn't have to one hand it he didn't have to move his body he just catches it and and basically walks into the end zone and that's that's the first game that's the first play of the game yeah it's, it's especially gross considering like he's in coverage it's the exact look you want you get you go thirteen personnel heavy you get again Alex Highsmith is a nice player and it continues to prove it and had a great game but if you get him in coverage. That's a win. <laughs> That's simple enough. People can get mad because of the result and say, "Well, why are you in three tight ends and spread?" They got the you get an easy matchup. You're you're throwing against right. an edge rusher for five cheap yards. It's like a first down run. It's the same thing. But th- again, this is kind of a microcosm of where they are, and we are definitely going to dig into this offense. But it's it's two tight ends to the left side, and if you get an off corner, it's a hitch from the number one, which is Jordan Akins. You get Harrison Bryant on a on a sort of speed out or a stick if it's if it's a it's a outside leverage player, he's going to stick run a stick route inside, right? Sit down, present your numbers to the quarterback. If you have inside leverage, you're going to work a speed out, right? It feels to me like the ball is just missed. I mean, Harrison Bryant is not coming out of cuts lightning fast. That's just not who he is, right? Tight ends don't do that stuff. There's a few select ones, but my my general point is that discombobulation that leads to what you saw. And of course, like I can, you you could do nothing but chuckle. Like you could do exactly. nothing but chuckle. Yeah. No, I was. And that's yeah. that's what made the game in Pittsburgh in the playoffs so wild because you're yes. like these things never happen. Where a right. shotgun snap goes over the head and the Browns recover it in the end zone. Like that stuff just never happened. I mean, there are instances you could probably run down and say, "Well, Jake, it does," but no, it really doesn't. And to your point, man, to start that game in a game that we knew points should have and were at a premium from their own Mm -hmm. offense Mm -hmm. to give away seven that quickly was awful just awful on simple shit man simple Mm -hmm. stuff andrew and and so then that fourth quarter strip sack highsmith knocks it out the ball does not bounce it at watson's feet and get into the pile the muddy pile of the pocket and bounce around a bunch it bounces straight back up in the air right to tj it, it's like you it was a bounce pass to him on an inbounds play yeah in the nba and he's and he's already in motion towards the end zone the the way and then you contrast that with 
the Browns had an interception in, in the red zone, and Grant Delpit undercuts a route beautifully, picks it off, can't stay on his feet. Yep. And, and they don't get points from that. The walking into the end zone on the two turnovers from the Browns is huge. You can say, that's well, what I, that's what I'm saying. You know, that's they, all, I'm not even talking about the turnovers, just the 100%. fact that they were almost handed to the one player on the field that's headed towards the end zone already. And it because happened keeping, twice. Yeah, because keeping Pittsburgh out of the end zone with their offense, the way exactly. they were playing, exactly. you hold them to three, two times and you win. And it's like right. the Browns right. get that turnover. Right. They can't even, because they, they, they miss the field goal. I mean, that's huge to have Kenny yeah. Pickett's first uh, real throw get picked off. You yep. take a sack, you kick it, you can't score, you know, because they've done a nice job. They came back and got three points on a pretty prolonged drive after the mm -hmm. first interception. Mm -hmm. Then you get all, if you go up 10-7, you got all the momentum in the world. Then you get another fumble, right? right? Now, they did score off of the fumble from uh, Gunnar Olszewski, but right. I, I continue to be con so confused at w what means at which they have to put that guy on the field, but neither here nor there. <laughs> like, I, I just, it's wild that, I, I'm actually stunned that ball went out of bounds, Andrew, that they didn't, you know, the Delpit scoops it and yeah, gets punched right. out and it somehow finds yeah. a way out of bounds. But that af after that one is when Nick has the gruesome right. leg injury. So right. they were able to capture zero momentum mm -hmm. off mm -hmm. of their big turnovers while exactly. Pittsburgh's able to dance into the end zone two times. And not even to mention the Rodney McLeod fumble. Right or right. sorry, interception that could have really changed right. the course of the start of the second half. So, mm -hmm. I mean, again, this is where we're, we're, we're talking about two things, Andrew, and I really want to hit on it. And it is, were we overconfident going mm -hmm. into this game? Mm -hmm. And are we overreacting to this game? That's something I really want to hit on because it took a, a really specific confluence of events to get Pittsburgh to 26. Mm -hmm. You know, it took mm -hmm. a very specific thing. Now, some of which is the Browns' fault, some of which is dumb luck where they dance into the end zone and find a way to score 13 points. But, like, I just think there's a, there's a you know, again, it changes if Nick is still healthy because you can really talk yourself through this is just a wild variance game. This is almost your week one type of weird outcome. But, you know, losing Nick, there's so much big picture stuff that we have to talk about because – it's not hard to see how they win this football game to me at all, especially no, the way their de their defense is playing. Mm -hmm. um, it just it it that's I guess what makes this whole thing so frustrating because what you do as a an analyst or a supporter or a fan is you're always spin cycling. How do you spin this into a way in which it works to push you forward and feel good about your team? Right. I really don't think it takes a ton to feel good about the Browns missing some opportunities and really clearly it took the perfect alignment of a couple plays for Pittsburgh to get those points necessary to win. But the way Nick has now left, it does, it just, it changes the future in a way that is so heavy that yeah. it is um, tough to feel great about it, even if yeah. you wanted to feel great about it. So I, I should throw to you, like, I don't think we were overconfident. I think the Browns still have pretty clearly to me, the better overall football team. Right. Um, I'll let you riff on that a little bit about the overconfident stuff if you want to, yeah. but what, but I want to do is really talk about yeah. how this game impacts the future because that's what we need to hit on. For sure. Yeah. That's where we got to turn our attention. Um, but I, I do think, yeah, to that point about overconfidence, it's not about it. It, and this, 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 sounds stupid to say i'm aware of that even before i've said it but it's not about 
overconfidence in the two teams matching up against each other. It is not understanding that football more than any of the, of the other major sports is governed by this ineffable sense of momentum and uh, energy that the, you know, the reason that the Browns won that playoff game in 2020 is because there weren't any fans there. I mean, I think that that now should be crystal clear to anybody that follows either of these teams, right? Like that some of that goofy stuff still happens, but the Steelers came close to coming back in that game. And I think if there's fans in the stands, they win that game. And pressure mount last night I mean, is such know, a, yeah, I agree. Yeah. The pressure like that first snap, you could feel it in the air. They needed right. a great drive to calm right. that feeling in the air. You're right. Like exactly. the people who say momentum and, and nerves and stuff, they don't get it. They don't get it. No. And, and so when you're looking at that game on the schedule, the week leading up to it, you always think, well, winning in Pittsburgh is tough, but then you forget just how tough until you, they start showing the stadium and the game starts and you feel that energy through your TV. I'm in North Carolina. I'm nine hours away from that stadium and I'm feeling it through my TV. So, my, my point here is that it's not about overconfidence. It's about not understanding that the Browns are still chasing what the Steelers have in that specific regard. The symbiotic yep. uh, benefit that they get from being at home with their head coach and that fan base that sort of wills them into these situations where the ball bounces their way again and again and again and you know and then we can talk about like penalties don't get called against them right because at at a certain point and I know this sounds stupid but at a certain point referees the the officials are not seeing the stuff the Steelers are doing wrong because they don't view it as the Steelers doing something wrong they view it as the, the Steelers winning it's like when Antonio Brown kicked the Browns punter in the face it's okay because that's the role the Steelers guy kicks the Browns guy in the face. That's what the, the officials are used to seeing. So this stuff just, it happens year in, year again. And I know that I sound crazy, but this is less about evaluating these two rosters and more about understanding, like we are in a, a, a sort of cosmic ballet here and the Browns are the punching bag. <laughs> and I don't know what yeah. has to happen long-term, Jake, for those roles to be reversed, but it's not going to happen overnight if you haven't felt the power of 70 i don't know yeah. what aquasure holds it's probably close to 65 70 70 000 people who have despite a really bad steelers team who has just some very specific really good players if 70 000 people that don't believe they're right. going to lose that, that it's that impossible just think that they own this franchise if you've never felt that it's a weight, man. And I speak about it in the same way of the tension exactly. at the Brown Stadium. When things yep. start to spiral, right. you can feel it. And it's not like the fans in Cleveland are intentionally doing this. Mm. They don't want to do that. But you can feel the baggage. You can feel all of it. And you can feel in Pittsburgh where, again, it's kind of wild because it didn't take much to win this game. You can just feel the belief they have that they're going to win. And it and it can lead to uncharacteristic yeah. moments right. right like that's just yeah. the, that it, night games in pittsburgh monday night football their record is their record because of 
you know, it's not really, I mean, I can't sit here and say it's all because of the fans, but they've had some great teams yeah, over symbiotic. the years, yeah. but that stigma yeah, carries both. on, they feed it off carries of on. So, and, and so, you know, it, it, yeah. it's, it's the little things, right? It's Donovan people's Jones, not catching that punt. It's, it's false starts. It's all these small mistakes that accumulate and accumulate and accumulate until eventually you're just washed away by it. You know, by the time that, that strip sack happens in the fourth quarter, it almost feels inevitable. Even though, as you, you rightly pointed out, they had negative yardage for the fourth quarter. They still feel like somehow it is their birthright to win a game in which their offense produces negative yardage for the fourth quarter and they entered with a deficit. That's it's cartoon stuff. So so to your point, Jake, about moving on and thinking about the future, I, I totally agree with you that the you know the where the conversation shifts to is is what happens with the quarterback now because the I, I think the most succinct way to say it is that coming into the season, the Browns had sort of two directives on offense, right? One was they had the best running back in the league and a really, really good and expensive offensive line. So running the ball efficiently and when they can explosively is a big part of their offensive identity. It just has to be because of what they've invested. And then the other piece, obviously, is what they've invested in the quarterback. And so you're trying to marry those two things. Uh, but they are sometimes intention, right? Because the way you get to the best running plays is not always the same way that you put the quarterback in the best positions. Well, I, and I don't want to gloss over it. Obviously, you know, you already mentioned it. What happened to Nick is terrible, and I feel heartbroken for him. It was really hard watching the rest of that game. You know, I was basically numb for the rest of that game and and was I really had shut down because of what happened. And, it, you know, I, I think you did a great job of talking about the the Fitzpatrick angle and, and what, you know, why that tackle the way that he does, it wasn't necessary. So I, you know, I don't want to give the impression that we're sweeping that under the rug because I'm holding on to that emotionally. And I will for some time. And I, you know, to be honest with you, Jake, I think the players probably will too. Like there's some injuries where you understand it's your job as a professional to keep going. I think this is one that will stick with them for a little bit longer. So I, I think to a certain extent, you know, the, uh, it's back to business stuff kind of rings a little bit hollow that I've seen some people, you know, on social media talking about. I think the I think the players are holding on to this one a little bit. But to the point about scheme and where they're headed, there's not competing priorities on offense anymore, right? It is the Deshaun Watson show for the rest of the 2023 season. And the only thing that matters between now and January, whatever, when they go to Cincinnati is what kind of passing offense they can put together. When I say they, I mean Deshaun Watson, Kevin Stefanski, Alex Van Pelt, Chad O'Shea, I guess, is probably involved. Whoever gets in that room and tries to figure this out, they have to find a way for it to be, I mean, I think a lot better than what we saw last night. Yeah, I think I think saying a lot better is very fair. I Listen, you said it well there. I think that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion spent on how they would go about uh, making this offense fit for um for for Deshaun and and that was a huge talking point in the offseason and I think that's a very fair conversation to be having right so the thought was they would throw everything into Deshaun and then Nick would find his way because Nick is adaptable he can do right. it all right the thing that was the most interesting piece of the early offense to me is that they had two feet in two different pools here they wanted to be um, adaptable in the sense that they could do things that Deshaun was comfortable with, but also reap the benefits of what Nick has traditionally been so great at. And they wanted to be at the same time able to work some run action and play action 
as I like to differentiate and find cheap answers off of the good stuff that Nick is exceptional at, right? The thing that was flawed about that is then you find yourself upticking things you shouldn't be upticking. Deshaun Watson, as Andrew and I spent some time on True Media looking up, is never he has never been in his best years anywhere near as effective of a thrower of the football from from the shotgun or sorry from under center as he is in the gun. He's just always been a better, more productive success rate, more productive EPA quarterback in the gun. So you have to find a way to make that work all the time. I mean, it, I understand Nick is your heart and soul of your organization at times, and you love him, but this there was still, I think you would agree with me, Andrew, an unwillingness to fully commit to making the offense about what made Deshaun comfortable. He can sprinkle in some under center play action stuff, but they were leaning into it hard. And this is a league-wide thing, man, where teams that have been leading the charge in under center production, under center play action um, volume, it's all mm-hmm. going down. It's 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 very interesting. I sent to you guys today that most of the Shanahan tree, which is the most successful group of this offensive structure Kevin comes from. Now, Kubiak's again, he's, he's like a brother, and then it branches into his own little thing. But teams that have moved in the Shanahan tree off of play action, San Francisco's 28th in play action this year. The Rams, McVay, 11 personnel play action guru, mm-hmm. 22nd. Miami, 15th. And you know that Miami, they could be doing that more than anybody just yeah. to mess with people with yeah. Mostert and Hill and Waddle. So here's what's you know pretty <laughs> eye-opening to me. The, the NFL is more exposed than ever through, if you look at the last decade, you know, if the decade kind of runs up to like when Shanahan arrived in Cleveland as the OC, teams started to get constant practice against this style. As those coaches get hired in different places, different places, different places, it was never a full league of Shanahan right. Kubiaks, but there's been a gigantic you know, a proportion of this thing in the league, you get exposed to it all the time, constantly seeing it, hearing it, the checks, the calls, the looks when they're passing, when they're throwing the ultimate goal. And you, if you go back to when Kevin Stefanski was hired, his whole thing. And what we all loved was marrying the run in the past. That mm-hmm. was the whole thing is, is making all their run game look like the past, trying to make their pass look like the run. And, you know, it was a huge part of his Minnesota success, but I'm just, I'm telling you, it has changed across the league, and defenses are better at defending it. Linebackers punch out way better than they used to. They don't follow the flow hard, and you don't get the second level drag the way you used to. Backside ends sit on that play way better than they used to to, to to eliminate the boot roll back the other way. And defensive linemen are so much better. It used to be a time, Andrew, where you would see outside zone run and a boot off of it, and there would be like defensive linemen running yep. the other way, mm-hmm. just running. And it doesn't happen anymore. They redirect and they understand the value of keeping him boxed in, redirecting up front, and then creating havoc in ways that eliminate some throws. I posted a throw of Deshaun Watson where he has Amari Cooper on an over route in this game. He has him. He has him. As he goes to set up and roll back opposite, he has to set up, drive up, and just that split second of somebody chasing him vertically to make him climb the pocket eliminates a chance to throw. He still should have thrown it. But he it just created enough mental chaos for Watson. He wouldn't throw it. So there is um, a shifting 
culture of offense happening right in front of our face that it is abundantly obvious that the play action, the way that we have been used to getting our helping of it is, is now far less effective than what we have known. So they need to, and again, like you said, it is absolutely atrocious that Nick might Mm -hmm. force this, Mm -hmm. the situation, but this is what has to happen. If you look at some of the Browns best play action stuff this year, and I went, you know, Andrew and I went through it before here, looking at some plays, some of their best play action to create space for Deshaun has been from the gun. They've actually found real ways to marry the run and pass from what they do in the gun in a way that is far more successful than under center. And there's no better way to look back on it. Um, There's a throw to Marquise Goodwin that I think we all saw live that Deshaun decided to rip to the left pylon of the end zone. It was, I think, a fine decision given where Goodwin was at the time of throw. But if you watch how the edge defenders, Highsmith and Watt, play, they're defending run. The Browns pull the backside guard. They're trying to look like they're running power. Deshaun kind of slides away from the power like he would if after the handoff. It is as clean a pocket as he saw all night, Andrew. And he had a dig that had nobody around Elijah Moore, but he threw the deep ball, which is fine. A, a really bad uh, chasing of uh, tracking of the football from from. Goodwin I don't know what the the communicated target point was there should have been an interception and it really would have been on Goodwin for not trying to go chase that thing down it's very strange but nonetheless what I'm saying is they are struggling in a way under Kevin now to identify consistent marrying of the run and pass if you look at the Highsmith sack which uh, the strip sack that goes to TJ Watt the Browns are under center right and you've heard the quote that TJ Watt said about We knew it was a pass. If you get the all 22 and a chance to watch it, I know some of you um, have NFL plus and you might be able to watch it. We are not going to be able to do a show this week where I would go through this. Maybe I'll put a video out on it um, and try to, to post it on Twitter and have a conversation around it. But if you watch it, they get up to the line and the Steelers are creeping a linebacker or a fifth DB, a nickel up into the line of scrimmage. And what happens is the Browns are under center and they're communicating what the protection needs to be, right? You see Deshaun point and identify him. You see Postage say something. You see Batonio pointing. You don't care about that on a run. You don't even remotely care. What you do is identify the mic and you have your rules for the run game about how to handle runners at the line of scrimmage. So the Steelers know when the Browns get to the line of scrimmage and run game, they do, you know, they're 80 plays into the game at this point. They traditionally do these few things. They get up to the line, they identify the mic, they might do a can call, the quarterback waves his hands, they reverse the play side, whatever, whatever. They have these very regimented things. Kevin's four years into this. Every single year, Watt and Highsmith have pretty much been there. They know it, right? If they get to the line and they're identifying this protection slide, they're under center, they're they're throwing this thing. (laughs) Like They're throwing it. So it's not hard to understand when you watch that snap, Watson is under center, he opens to his left, he turns his back to the defense, extends the football to Jerome Ford, as the offensive line does what they traditionally do in what I call play action, run action, all 11 are committed to selling the run play action. Just a couple guys are committed to selling it a flash fake to hold backers. The flash fake is a death sentence here. The two edge players are upfield a mile a minute turning the corner because the tackles have to close a really high arc running upfield. 
from a positional you're not even cheated back the way you traditionally are in shotgun stuff to get a head start on that you're up closer to the line because you're pre-snap trying to sell hey we might run but you've given away you're throwing it so when watson gets off the play fake hits his uh, hits his drop point which is a couple steps extra because of the play fake he's dead you can get mad at jedrick wills all you want right and i think they even pegged this sack on him but the problem is the guys the damn mm-hmm. play call and it, the problem isn't like they had a player open. If they could have sat in and, and had Watson step up, he has an over route that's naked from Donovan Peoples-Jones. But there's no chance because the, the Steelers know the play. The, the, the task of you pretty much are asking Jed to turn around and run backward. They chipped Watt on the other side. They left Highsmith solo. You're asking him to turn around and run. It's an impossible task almost. And what I'm getting at is, they need to in this week, Andrew, a long winded spout there from, I'm sorry, but like they need to go back to the drawing board here a bit and say what we did with Nick. I I, I think they had a plan and it didn't mm-hmm. work. They were trying to marry some of the success and Nick was still doing Nick things. He ran 10 carries for 64 yards. He's doing his thing, but they're not able to lean into that the way they are have traditionally done and if they sign someone we're going to talk about in a minute and still do that stuff i will be as close to being done with with kevin as an offensive play caller as i've ever been because it's so flawed you're taking out the worst characteristics of watson you're bringing in kareem hunt who is not a wide zone runner i think jerome ford is a a very much work in progress wide zone runner you have downhill guys that should be in the gun rpos and you keep, you know, the Browns are like like fourth, Andrew, in success rate or fifth in mm-hmm. shotgun run percentage. They're doing well in shotgun run. They're just not throwing it well from there because I don't think they're doing enough investment into mirroring their gun run and pass game. So, you know, they brought in Kareem Hunt today. Let's, let's just kind of go there and talk about where the offense goes. We don't know if they're going to sign him or if they're going to sign somebody else, a Leonard Fournette mm-hmm. or who, who knows. But this is now the biggest thing to me from this whole segment is they have to be all in. And I know you said that, but like really, truly all in on putting Watson in the gun. I think the Bengals have like three under center snaps. The Eagles have like nine on the year, put this guy in the gun and give them chances to run inside. The Browns ran four carries of inside Mm. zone. Andrew, they had, one of them was Watson pulled it and didn't throw the bubble. I, I will yeah, never that, understand that what the hell insane. was going on with that play I posted. He takes a one-yard loss. But other than that, they had a 20-yard Nick run and two four-yard rushes from Jerome Ford. And if in in Watson pulled one of the RPOs and threw mm-hmm. that speed out to um, – which I didn't understand because he threw it to the right side, a speed out to uh, Peoples-Jones with outside leverage. It was a terrible throw. I'm actually surprised it didn't get jumped and picked. But – if the heat of given mm. that ball, like I'm telling you, man, it was a it was another big run. They need to be an inside yep. zone team with some play action wrinkles off of that and, uh, and continuing their power, their pin pull run game from the gun and, and giving Watson some chance to mm-hmm. pull and run. It It's not hard. It's all sitting right there for you is what yeah. I'm saying. No, I, that's a lot. That's a record long <laughs> speech for me. I know we like to go back and forth. I just had to get it out. No, I just think, I, I it's, think right it's right there. It's really well said, Jake, and I think it sums up so much of the, you know, like, I think the brunt, 95, 98% of the criticism from last night is on Watson, right? If you look around social media, people I've talked to in my life, 
they're on the quarterback. No, I, you know, nobody is talking about the head coach. And I, I mean, and, and you also, you know, pointed out on, on Twitter today, some, some clips of wide receivers running wide open that Watson wasn't able to get the ball to them. So, you know, I think we still think that Kevin Stefanski can scheme it up from time to time, but there, I think there are some bigger picture questions about, like you said, the way that the run and the pass are married and his reluctance still in 23, you know, this is what, this was a theme last year. It's, it's showing up again, his reluctance to kind of go all in on the stuff that, that Watson likes to do and the stuff that, that this team is better at doing. And so, so that's, so, you know, I just want to try and bucket the questions here, right? One question that I have going forward is exactly what you just said. What adjustments does the coach make now that they really only have one path forward to success, right? Because he doesn't, this, you know, if they were, if they were walking a tightrope before, Nick Chubb was the net, right? Like he's your safety blanket on every play, every drive. You're, if you're on, if you're in second and nine, we'll give it to Nick. We'll get five yards. We'll make it a third and four. And then it's, you know, then we can work, right? He, he was, he was the, the, the glue that held the whole thing together. That's why the injury is so devastating. Without that, you're in a situation where you have to, put all your chips on the quarterback. And that means changing, going all in on what allows him to do what he does. So that's one bucket, right? And then I think there's a few things that I just want to touch on from the quarterback that go along with that, right? You mentioned some of the decision-making. It feels to me right now that Watson's decision-making gets worse as the pressure of the game increases. So as the situation gets later, the Browns are down or the game is tight. He, he goes to this sort of idea of trying to be a playmaker without making the right decision. So on the, on the one where he doesn't throw the bubble, he's, I think he's keeping it because he thinks he can make somebody miss and make something happen. It's reminiscent Jake of Baker Mayfield in his heyday, getting flushed from the pocket and being like, Oh, I can, I can scramble here trying to, trying to dead leg the guy in Minnesota a few years ago, right? It's that sort of thing where, you, you know, you can see his brain and what he's trying to do. He's trying to put it all on his shoulders, but he can't, you know, and it's, that's, so I've, I felt some of that from Watson. And then there's the questions about his accuracy. I thought accuracy wise, he improved as the game went on yesterday. You know, I think there were still a few ones, a few throws late on the sideline that were way out of bounds, but you know, when he was seeing it well, he was able to really step in. And so some of the stuff that we saw week one with accuracy, I think really was a product of the conditions. So now to me, the two, the, the two big questions, I think accuracy is sort of a third tertiary concern. The two big questions is what does Kevin Stefanski do with his scheme to make Watson as comfortable and productive as possible? And then can Deshaun Watson, when put in those advantageous situations, get to the right receiver, the right read, the right decision more reliably, because right now it's like a coin flip. Very well said, all of that. I think that um, if I were Kevin, I would be vocal. I'm just I'm just going to say it right now. Um, I would be vocal about uh, we have we have, uh, you know, identified with Deshaun everything he wants and we're doing everything we can to make him comfortable and, and giving him as much 
accountability for what happens in this That's offense as possible. Because if you draw a line in the sand, we have talked about this for a long time. There is going to be one person that will always be removed in this situation. So putting the onus on him is, uh, I think never imperative do it, at this point. And, and it, he won't. Uh, I, 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 what we need to pay attention to very no, closely right. is the verbiage right. because he will he will mm-hmm. say it in a way that is um, uh, very saying. subtle. Yeah. So we'll we'll be paying yeah. close attention to that. So. You're right. Uh, we, we are saying the same thing here. They need to make him as comfortable as possible, not just because, you know, it's Watson and they're paying him the money and he should be um, just because it fits what I think they're going to get from a running back and giving the running back the best chance to succeed. And, you know, I don't think they need to lean into the run game anymore. I think that they, you know, just me personally. Anyway, you're you know, Watson played really bad. You're right. He's right now very much a see it open throw at player. He's not anticipating right. much at all. He's not trusting his eyes. His uh, accuracy ball placement stuff is off right now. And maybe it changes. These things are capricious. It happens every single year where he'll hit a heater and it could happen and he could get right back on track. I mean, again, it was awful and it's hard to sit here and tell you guys listening uh, diligently that, hey, Deshaun's going to turn around next week, but it could happen, sure. right? It could happen, especially if he gets more comfortable. He could start to really dice things up the way we've uh, grown accustomed to seeing. The NFL is a week-to-week thing. They say any given Sunday for a reason. We're super down on the Browns. They could come out and hit two big 50-yard plays, and you start to feel completely different about the offense next week. But, um, you know, what is is most interesting to me is will they, will they be willing to make those all-in changes that at this point they have no choice. The stuff under center is bad for – Deshaun, in general, you don't have a generational running back forcing you, not that he wasn't even forcing you, making you want to lean that direction. And the NFL is telling you it's not going to work anymore in the way you've traditionally done it. If you are unwilling to adapt to that, you do not deserve to be calling plays or probably the head coach of the Cleveland Browns in the foreseeable future. So that is a very stern for me, Andrew, line in the sand that if he can't mm-hmm. fix this and get it in the direction of schematic stuff that is necessary, I start to say they're going to need to look around. They're going to need to look around. You said this once already. I just want to underline it and highlight it for people out there listening that maybe are not as scheme savvy as you are because I, I think I, I it's taken me time to adjust to this too. But you said already the Bengals have been under center three plays so far this year. The Eagles like six. So, so, and both teams have probably run 120 to 150 plays. So you're talking about less than 10%. You're talking about almost never. So when we look at week three, I mean, they've got, you know, Tennessee's coming to Cleveland in five days, right? When we're talking about this game, we're not talking about like a 50, 50 split because that's, 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 that would be the most under center team in the league. If they were 50, 50, what we're right. What we're talking about is truly a handful of snaps in the game under center. So like you, you start counting at home, you get a little, you know, you get a notepad and you make a hash mark every time they're under center. And if it gets to double digits, expect Jake and I to be yelling about this, you know, in your ears by Monday morning, because that's, it's that simple. Nothing of it makes right. sense anymore to do it that way. You you can't even say you're holding the hand of a quarterback to give him. E- there was a time when this offense did take average quarterback play and exactly. raise the roof yeah. of that guy, bring him the basement, right. I should say. It's not that way anymore. Def- defenses are too good at defending it. So you better find another way, and it's a short right. week, and you better lean yeah. into this hard. Um, we're going to learn some things about this offense um, I'll talk more about the defense when we go through the, the 22 breakdown, but I think we've covered uh, pretty much everything. The thing I have to hit on on the way out the door, um, Andrew, and we'll, you know, if they sign a running back, we'll get deeper into that. I mean, Kareem probably makes the most sense because of 
his familiarity with some of the baseline stuff here, but I really would hope that they don't feel pressured into making that decision because right. of a short week. You can draw it out. You can do some things to make that work over time. You can't fix Nick Chubb's injury in one six day span between the day and the and the Monday night and the Sunday one o'clock kick. Uh, the, the hits keep coming as we're recording this. Um, Josina Anderson tweeted out that I'm told internal discussions um, initially with Nick Chubb's injuries, potentially needing two surgeries to address his injuries following Monday night football in Pittsburgh. The first coming within the next seven to 10 days and the second occurring several weeks after she highlights that there's a worry um, that the meniscus uh, is also. So we're talking about a like as devastating a knee injury as we have seen in a long time. You're not talking about an open field cut. You go down, it's an ACL tear. You're back in nine, 10 months. Meniscus, all of the ligaments in a knee. If you don't know this about Nick, and I said it on yesterday's pod, he had a devastating left knee hyperextension at Georgia. um, That if you look at a foot, it looks fake. What happened to his knee at Georgia? We're talking about, and this is just big picture conversation, one of the most – he might even – if this guy didn't lose – you know, I don't know if he's going to come back from this, Andrew. And I told my – I had a conversation with my dad today uh, who's so passionate. And I said, Dad, he probably will find a way to come back, but you're done seeing the Nick Chubb that you know. The guy you know that is explosive and there will still be vision stuff and it'll be great, but – the guy we know of Nick Chubb is no longer there. It's just not. And I'm not trying to to say his recovery can't go great, but these two knee injuries on the same knee, they change your athletic mm-hmm. makeup. <laughs> they do these are de- these are not routine ACLs. If you didn't watch the clip, it was as I <laughs> It's it's broken. It was broken, inverted with ACLs and and and, and PCL, MCL. Everything is destroyed in there. I, I can't get over it, Andrew. I can't stop thinking about how that player went into yeah. his knee, yep. the irresponsible nature of that. T- and I, I, I said this and I, and I don't know if you heard me say, it, but, but like, he, I'm not saying Minka Fitzpatrick is dirty. He was intentfully going in there to hurt him, but he broke a football yeah. rule to me an yeah. etiquette rule that the way he went about the Nate Burleson did mm-hmm. a great job of putting mm-hmm. that out there about, would you do that to your exactly. own teammate in a, in a live right. practice session? Like I, it was so irresponsible and it's unfortunate. I don't, again, I don't think Minka's thinking, yeah, let me give me that knee, but like the irresponsible way he went about that is so awful. And um, it's, it's like this, the stuff from Josina is kind of hitting me. You were yeah. talking and I, I, <laughs> I probably, I'm sure I made a mm-hmm. face. It's so yeah. devastating because if you watch Nick before the knee injuries, man, at Georgia, and he found a way back yeah. to the guy we know who's yeah. the best in the NFL, he was unbelievable. And if he didn't have these injuries, you're talking about the hands down. I respect to Derrick Henry, the best back of this generation. And that's what is yeah. um that's what's yeah. so heavy yeah. about it, man. Is like the, the, these 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 two surgeries and it, it's so hard to envision. I mean, n- never doubt Nick. I'm right. not trying to doubt him. If anybody can, can come back him. and do right. it. But I just really think that the guy, you know, the guy that we knew is um is hard to envision that athlete returning. Yeah, I, I and again, I think this is you know big picture. This is what made last night so hard because uh, you know a, a goofy ass uh, defeat to a Steelers team that you know you think the Browns are better than, but the Browns find a way to 
give it up a few times. We've seen that story before. That's nothing that we can't handle as Browns fans, honestly, right? Like we're, yeah. I mean, we have been through this nonsense. We're tough, but there's nothing that prepares you for what that, what that was. Right. And, and I mean, to your point, I, you know, I think it's worth un- underlining the unnecessary nature of the hit, right? This was not, as you said, this is not the open field where you're trying to make somebody miss. This is not, what happened to Jack Conklin in week one where somebody rolls up on you and it's just, you know, football guys playing football. This is a guy making a play that he didn't have to make in a way that was unnecessary and, and, and not like you said, not appropriate football behavior. Now I, I, I'll just, I just want to say one more thing about this. And this is, this is, we have to come up with a, a theme for this because I sometimes just go completely out to left field. This is another, I'm going to just walk out to left field quick. The Rugby World Cup is happening right now, and rugby, they don't play with helmets, but they're all built the same as NFL football players. And there is a, there is a code in rugby that you, you don't tackle above the shoulders. You cannot tackle, by, you can't bring somebody to the ground using their neck. You can't, you know, there, there, there are rules about how you tackle, and if you tackle in, inappropriately, you can get removed from the game for the rest of the game. That's how seriously they take player safety, right? That they, the referee is empowered to police tackling procedure. Now I know to Americans, this sounds like European nonsense. I am aware of that, but I do think it's worth just kind of like emphasizing what you said, Jake, that even in the NFL, that's not policed by the referees, but there is, there is a culture of responsible tackling. And Minka Fitzpatrick was outside of that culture last night. And it's going to cost Nick Chubb years of his career, most likely. And that is, there's no word for it other than a tragedy. It's a tragedy. And it has a chance to swing the Browns' future. I mean, like, in a very real way. Absolutely. Swing the Browns' future. So, um, you know, I saw Ryan Clark, who sometimes has some great points, sometimes has some um, interesting ones. He's like, well, if we can't go high and we can't go with the legs, where do we go? I'm like, well, that leaves a gigantic portion of the body to probably try to right. tackle somebody at. If Minka Fitzpatrick barrels in Nick Chubb's torso and he has a bruised torso, right? You know, okay, right? right? You know, stinks. Yeah. You know, and you never want to put down what happened to Demar Hamlin, but like, it's just, I, <laughs> I really don't know what other way to say it. I, I, I think that you know, Pittsburgh people are standing up for their guy. And I understand that. And there's some people around the league who are trying to do that. I am again, not saying he is a nasty person with bad intentions, but that etiquette of football was, yeah, it was awful. Yeah. It was awful. And, uh, it just, it just has a chance to, to linger here uh, into the foreseeable future. So we'll see how the Browns adapt. I mean, needless to say, it is a wild and wildly important week of preparation and, uh, we'll see what they come out looking like in a game at home that has a chance to, if the offense is anemic, um, be pretty spicy in the stadium. We'll leave it at that. So <laughs> Andrew, I appreciate you stopping by and uh, doing an opener that went longer than we thought, but there's just so much that's so heavy right now, you know? So there's, there's a lot to talk about there. We appreciate it. I appreciate you giving me the platform to get real weird with some of my takes there, Jake. And, and thank you. Uh, it's, it was a pleasure to, to work through uh, some stuff with you. All right. We will be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data 
and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Buying tickets to your favorite events should not be stressful, guys. Game time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and concerts near you. You can find them last minute with killer deals, and their best price guarantee helps you stop stressing over the tickets and start getting hyped for all the fun you've had. Listen, the Browns have the Titans coming in in Week 3. There's a chance these guys could be 2-0 and coming back to Cleveland for a home game. You should be looking ahead at buying those tickets, and game time is the right place to do it. So why would you go game time? They have flash deals, last-minute tickets. They're easy to find. Buy tickets for every kind of event in your area, specifically those Cleveland Browns. You get great images of the seats view which is awesome when you're trying to figure out how the stadium is going to look when you're trying to find that right ticket for the right price. And they have that low price guarantee and event cancellation protection, job loss protection, all of the stuff to help you protect your money, right? It's the fastest growing ticket app for a reason in the country. You get images of your seats. Like I said, before you buy them, you buy tickets in a matter of seconds and they're sent directly to your phone. All right. So you never have to go digging through your email to find something last second. It is always there. You can put them in your wallet app and make sure to have them up and ready to go. It's important to know you can download that game time app, which makes it extremely easy, very intuitive, very fast way to buy those tickets, create an account and use the promo code OBR for $20 off your first purchase. Again, terms apply. Again, create that account, redeem the code OBR for $20 off. You can do so at GameTime.co. It is not .com, it is GameTime.co. But I would suggest downloading that app, taking advantage of the $20 off coupon using the promo code OBR. Download GameTime today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. If you stuck around past the break, what's up? How are you? I can't believe you did that because this was not a fun game to talk about. And uh, you care about the Cleveland Browns and what happened. So... Let's break down some of the specifics here, right? So if we're looking at offense first, you know, we like to talk about player grades and then some of the numbers put on the field. 
Your top graded players were Amari Cooper, David Bell, Jerome Ford, Nick Chubb, Wyatt Teller, Ethan Posich were your top graded players at the bottom. You had Jedrick Wills at a 50.7. This is working down to the 20th graded player. Donovan Peoples-Jones, Harrison Bryant. Dewan Jones gets a 48.6, largely due to his run blocking grade. We'll talk about that. And then Marquise Goodwin, a 45.9. Pierre Strong um, in 13 snaps at a 45.2. Guys who are still seeing low snap numbers. Michael Dunn is the sixth offensive lineman, so he comes on the field as a reported eligible. Nick Harris, when the Browns go seven down near the goal line, they will put Nick Harris on the field. He'll be the fullback. He had two snaps. Um, David Bell had 11 snaps, so he's obviously not seeing a ton of volume. Had a couple catches, though. Jordan Aiken saw nine. Cedric Tillman saw nine. And then Marquise Goodwin, 15. Pierre Strong, 13. Everybody else, uh, Harrison Bryant saw 26. Kind of looking at, you know, most guys are up in the 60s and, and, and above that you did not hear there. So those are your baseline grades. Watson in this game. 59.9 59.9 offensive grade to 63.7 pass grade. The run grade was a 57.2 and then obviously was severely docked by the fumble. He had a big-time throw, one labeled big-time throw. He had two turnover-worthy plays, uh, both of which uh, came on throws. Um, obviously, they don't grade fumbles as turnover-worthy plays. I don't believe, but he gets two of those. He obviously gets credit for the interception and then the dropped interception I believe they would put that on him in the end zone. Uh, unfortunately, Goodwin's ball tracking there was very strange, but I think that has to land in his lap. Four of the six sacks were accounted to him, either not getting rid of the football to opportunities that are downfield or running into pressure on his own. He had two drops. I feel like the grade's pretty appropriate, 63.7. You can get a bit more specific if you would like. When he was kept clean in this game, 17 of 27, 167, one touchdown. His interception did come off when he was kept clean, but that's a pretty strong 79.9 passing grade. When he was under pressure is when the grade falls apart. 5 of 13 for 68 yards, 44.8 grade, and two of his turnover-worthy plays. So I was actually incorrect. Um, The two turnover-worthy plays came when he was under pressure, not on the Harrison Bryant throw. They did not give him a turnover-worthy play there, although I believe it was because the ball was thrown too far out in front of the receiver. But there's a difference in opinion there. So two turnover-worthy plays for Watson when he was under pressure. When he was not blitzed in this game, he was 13 of 24 for 129 and a touchdown in that interception. And then when he was blitzed, he graded out pretty well against it, 9 of 16 for 106. So, essentially what you're looking for, when's he struggling? Non-play action, right, um, is when he's struggling. And when they're not blitzing and getting pressure with the front four and dropping bodies into coverage, that's when they're giving him the biggest negative grade. So, that's uh, not all too encouraging from that perspective. Um, that, that's the, those are the moments that are happening. His, his play action grades was 2 of 5 on 7 dropbacks for 52 yards. Non-play action, 20 of 35, 183, a touchdown and interception. And then 3 of 3 on screens for 11 yards, 19 of 37 on non-screens for 224. The 20-plus depth, he had a 1 for 5 mark for for, um, 23 yards. Medium throws, 5 of 10, 77. Short throws, 14 of 20 for 127. It was uh, all relatively graded fine there. You know, they included um, even the interception didn't totally hurt him because, like I said, I didn't. I don't think they gave him a ton of blame for that one. But 
Um, he was rough. He did not see the field very well. Um, he did not process guys coming open. The Steelers played a ton of man coverage, so they played 26 one man uh, or one free or uh, whatever you want to call it, cover one. That's a high volume of snaps there. They played seven snaps of cover two, 39 snaps of cover three, and two snaps of cover six. So they were very comfortable playing four under three deep or getting in the Browns' faces and pressuring them and, and making them beat coverage throws, beat those guys. And I'm just discouraged, I'm going to say, by the lack of motion in this offense right now. And and I mean purposeful motion. They're not doing enough to get switch releases based on alignment. They're not confusing man coverage. You know, getting those switch releases gets guys caught up, right? They don't they're not doing enough to create those opportunities for guys to get open through alignment, through release, and through motion. Let me put it that way. They're very, very all too predictable right now against man coverage, and they're not giving their receivers, tight ends, running backs any help. They need to correct that, rectify that as soon as possible because for Pittsburgh to sit in 26 snaps of cover one and really not get hurt all too bad when playing cover one, that's sort of the thing that's amazing. In this one, Watson's um, EPA per drop back was negative .38. It was especially rough on the rush four scenario where it was a negative .49. Um, where he excelled was when Pittsburgh brought one man in coverage, uh, sorry, out of coverage and blitzed. He actually had a positive .28 EPA per dropback. Um, when the Pittsburgh got crazy with blitz, when they brought six plus, he was a negative 1.14. So that that gave him some fits, right? So those are some of the the more specific numbers tied to EPA and what it looks like, right? So. If you look at um, opponents' coverage schemes and how he performed against those, the um, against cover one look, the EPA per dropback was negative point four zero. When they went man to man and brought five, he was better again point fifty one. So on the stronger side, as he went five of nine for fifty two yards. It's when they brought six plus that he struggled. It was again negative one point one four. If you look at how he fared against cover three. Um, it is not much better, a little better, but not, not much. He was a negative, uh, 0.20 on EPA per drop back there. And then when they rushed four, he was at negative uh, 0.37. And again, on the positive side of, um, the rush five spectrum at 0.19. So you can sense where he was handling the extra blitzer well, they brought a ton or if they pressured with four that is where he tended to struggle in this one specifically so those are your coverage specifics we can look at cover two real quick I'm kind of clicking around you can probably hear me in the background looking at the specifics the the cover two cover six stuff was his worst two of eight in those scenarios a lot of which were third downs where he had his interception against the cover two so he was two of eight for 45 yards with the negative 0.91 0.91 EPA per drop back against those looks, right? He had 45 yards because largely he hit David Njoku on a short route on a, on a first and 20 on just a little flat dump off check release. And Njoku turned that into like 25 yards of, of, uh, of yak on that play to make it a second and short. He did get a nice 16 yard throw up the left sideline against um, some some down uh, open coverage right against that cover six 
look specifically. I think the Browns were backed up third and 13. This was probably his best throw of the game. Third and 13 in the third quarter. Actually, early fourth quarter, 818 left in this one. The Browns are backed up, like I said, at their own three-yard line. You get a rotation to, um, it looks like Pittsburgh's playing a form of cover six with a down corner to the field right, so you get that half on the backside. You know what I'm saying? Um, you get Sorry, getting quarters on the backside, and he just beats the curl flat defender over the top and puts the ball specifically where he wanted it to uh, to be placed. It was it was his best throw, if you find that one, to Elijah Moore for 16 yards. So that's Watson's day. Again, a D, D-plus, and um, I think that's a pretty fair grade. We'll kind of move on from that. Let's talk receiving grades. Amari Cooper, 81.2, thought he looked great. Seven catches on nine targets, some up-the-sideline grabs that were difficult. Not quite as twitchy, got caught up in some man coverage here and there, but 13 slot snaps, 31 wide, created. Uh, didn't create much yards after catch, but two of three uncontested catches were exceptional uh, for what he was put up against. Three targets for David Bell in those 11 snaps. He had um, three catches for 27 yards, so I thought he did fine, came in and played four in the slot. Four out wide when they were throwing the ball. Elijah Moore should have caught a ball up the left sideline. He was three of eight on targets that got put in the bucket. I put that on Twitter. He had 17 slots at snaps, 19 wide. He had a couple in the backfield. Uh, he left some balls on the field, right? They they ended up giving him, uh, I think he ended up going for two first downs where Cooper uh, on his catches went for six. And then... They did not chart him as a drop on that throw. I just think he couldn't get his feet in on the left sideline. That would have been a really big play the Browns needed. Jerome Ford gets a fine receiving grade, 78.1, catching three or four targets, 25 yards, obviously catches that touchdown. Jordan Akins catches one ball for two yards. And Joku, four for 48, but they docked him pretty heavily because of the fumble. He ends up having one, uh, catches one of one challenge targets. Um, four missed tackles forced from David. Those are the only four missed tackles forced by any receiver in this game. The drop went to Jerome Ford and Pierre Strong. They did not chart Harrison Bryant with a drop on that ball from Watson. I don't really know how they're grading that. They didn't give Bryant a drop, and they didn't give Watson a turnover-worthy throw. It's a little confusing how they're grading that. I thought the wide receivers were fine. I was a little disappointed Marquise Goodwin um, was was uh, didn't track that ball. He had a chance to go get a deep ball there on the left pylon and, and got all turned around and discombobulated. So I didn't like that. But otherwise, I thought the receivers were fine. The tight ends were fine. The running game was okay too. Um, you know, obviously Jerome goes for the highest run grade in eighty two point three. He forced two missed tackles. The huge sixty nine yard run sort of saves his day. A lot of zone and gap nine zone seven gap runs created the one 15-yard-plus run. He passed block really well, too, according to their metrics. I thought he was fine as well. Um, Nick had 50 yards after contact and 64 total on the game on 10 carries, four missed tackles forced, and um, just going to miss watching him play, put it that way. Pierre Strong had a couple carries. He gets a 45.2, um, his run grade of 59.4. Uh, Landon Roberts stuck him on the goal line, but that's it. He had two carries down on the goal line. He couldn't really do much uh, with that. Watson's run grade, um, not very good. Three carries, 22 yards, 57.2. Three scrambles, obviously, those none of which came on designed runs. He had one quarterback draw that, that basically netted zero yards. And he had the two penalties. I mean, he had the two face masks, which were absolutely crushing 
penalties that you have to add to his docket. Um, otherwise, uh, let's continue. Look at pass blocking. I talked about Jerome Ford already. Your actual offensive lineman pass blocking in this one. It's one of the worst collective grades I've seen from them. Um, a 50, uh, sorry, the highest mark goes to Batonio at a 69.2, but even he gave up two pressures. Dewan Jones gives up five pressures, but he gets a 67.0 and did well in true pass set scenarios. Now, the Browns helped him a lot with Watt. Not a ton, but but a decent amount. I thought he handled himself really well in that setting. Um, so so credit to him for, I, you know, like I said, he gave up five pressures, but not all came against Watt. I thought he was not the problem. Postage at the middle, um, post at 61.8. He gave up a pressure. I continue to be a little concerned with his ability to replicate the strong start he had to last year. Jedrick Wills with the 58.1. He gave up five pressures. His his pass block win rate has continued to go down year over year. He's wildly inconsistent. And I think with Jed, you you have a lot of uneasiness with Watson and the and the protection, especially against just four. He's not helping. He's really hindering things. Five pressures. I don't have the. I think he had given up a similar number. He obviously gave up a sack on the strip strip sack fumble. Again, a hard job for him to do, but he's got to be able to handle that. He just continues to get beat inside once the quarterback steps up. It's amazing how he has regressed over a four year period now. It's really frustrating to watch. Wyatt Teller was not good in this one either. I thought Larry Ogunjobi got the best of him way too many times, especially in one-on-one slide scenarios where you just have to, you got to get a half body, man, to give your quarterback a chance, and he just didn't do it. He ends up getting a 53.5, a 34.9 on those true pass sets. That is um, four pressures, two hits on the quarterback, a hurry, and a sack allowed. The run game blocking was better for some. I mean, Teller gets a strong run grade blocking number because that's what he's best at. Zone and gap were strong. Postage was fine in that phase two. Where the offensive line got hurt is they gave poor grades to Betonio, who um, is in the low 60s for zone, 54.6 for gap. I thought that was fitting. He was just sliding off a little too much. And then your two tackles were, you know, they can't down block. They, they just can't. Like Jedrick Wills in this game couldn't handle down blocking consistently, sliding off too many times. Dewan has, again, continued his ritual of going the wrong direction one time, and he doesn't understand quite yet the little nuances of how defenders slide, exchange, and move after the snap, so that's catching him and getting him at wrong angles. That could improve. He's young, you know, but the thing we're talking about with Jedrick Wills is this stuff is not always... It's not always linear, right? It doesn't just it doesn't just drastically improve the way you think it just is supposed to continue to drastically improve, and that's always cause for concern. It's always cause for concern because you need these guys to hone in on their craft and get better, and it's like sometimes it's the little things that are biting these guys in the run game, and they still had a pretty good run game. I mean, they went up for, you know, 150, 200 yards again, and that's the part that is really disappointing really disappointing is that they're just missing little little parts of the details now now i think they need to run inside zone more it's it it can be successful for them uh, they only ran it four times outside zone they ran it 17 times uh in this one for um 
Sorry, they ran it 14 times with three play actions off of it. They ran power eight times with two play action off of it, three from the gun. Counter, they ran two times from the gun. No play action off of their counter looks, and then pin pull they ran three times. So uh, we talked about the opener here about the evolution of the offense, the 17 outside zone, only three of those. I think uh, a couple of those came from the gun. They have got to alter their primary rush concept plans. Let's put it that way. They have to alter those plans. Pittsburgh played 23 snaps of base, 47 snaps of nickel, and dime. They played 14 snaps of dime. They went DB heavy, 12 of which were on third down, and they got funky with the blitz stuff, and it gave the Browns problems, and it gave Watson problems specifically. So um, that is that is your offense. Um, they left plays on the field where they needed protection to last a, a second longer or they needed the quarterback to anticipate it and they didn't get it. You should be frustrated. I'm sure they're frustrated. They left plays on the field. They made critical mistakes and it wasn't it wasn't good enough. And that is um, you know disheartening to go to Pittsburgh and have a game you could really win there and not get it done. So pretty big bummer there. Let's switch to defense real quick and on the way out the door. 11 personnel. Pittsburgh with only 55 snaps. I mean, the Browns had the Browns had 33, um, I think, but I believe 33 more snaps. Depends on how you sort of chart the penalties, but a ton more snaps for the Browns. Pittsburgh ran 11 personnel 35 times, 12 personnel 16 times. They did do 13, but that was for some of their kneel downs at the end. Really, the Browns played five snaps of base, 41 of nickel, and then they played um, a lot of third down dime. In this one, I'm encouraged by sometimes they're willing to put Grant Delpit down. Like their dime will be three safeties, three corners. They'll sometimes put a single linebacker on the field, which in this one was Sione Takitaki a few times, and play Grant down at linebacker. Grant Delpit is playing some really special football. I mean, like really special football. He gets a 90 grade. He has a great interception. He plays 50, all 54 snaps charted by PFF, an 83.2 run grade, including. You know, two stops near the line of scrimmage, five total tackles, the interception. He had two receptions given up in coverage, but for only, um, I don't think he gave up very many yards on those, right? He ends up giving up, yeah, actually both go for zero as a net gain. So he is where he's supposed to be. He's aggressive, physical, flying around, and a lot of fun. Miles Garrett gets a 91.7, including a 91.1 rush grade, three pressures, two hurries, one hit. I mean, you know, he's where he's supposed to be. He's winning his rushes. The the Steelers were super cautious, cautious with him. And if he, you know, he had a couple that could have resulted in quarterback turnovers. Pickett got his legs held. You know, Miles got him by the legs and was dragging him down. And he, like, flipped an underhand throw that JOK was a foot away from catching and re- running back into the end zone. So Miles was still really good, despite what people want to talk about TJ Watt. And, like, it's just, it's results-based consumption of football it's so damn annoying um guys who otherwise stood out to me maurice hurst who gets the third highest grade two pressure he is fun on the interior they've done a nice job getting maurice hurst in the right place to be a real contributor he's done a nice job he had a sack in this one shelby harris was great in the interior continues to split double teams in his 21 snaps anchor against you know, the double team before the split. Like, he's just doing a great job. Ogwa Karankwa had three pressures in this one as well. Some bull rush, some spin move stuff. He He's he's a fun player, and he's continuing to get better. He had two hurries and a hit on the quarterback, two 
um, assisted tackles and a, and a solo tackle as well. Zadarius, as again, the front was so was so fun. 77.6 for him, 71.6 in pass rush. He did have a couple missed tackles. Those docked him a little bit, but that front was really special. Dalvin Tomlinson even graded out pretty good too. Pass rush, run defense, he continues to be a disruptor. Three pressures inside, just a fraction late on the Kenny Pickett touchdown throw uh, to, to um, George Pickens up the seam in that busted cover too. It looks... The, the that play is very strange. I don't know what Denzel Ward is doing so wide. It, it, it I can see a case for both cover two invert, and I can see a case for cover three. The corner landmarks and, and how they play it feel more cover three. The safety squatting, chasing the initial tight end on the drag feels a bit more two invert to me. It's just Denzel's sort of floating off in no man's land. I'm not totally sure on that one, but that was a bust. There were a couple times that they sent a, a couple guys chased uh, in in some zone coverage stuff, chased a flat and should have sat in a window, you know, especially on that picket throw. I was just talking about two um, pick ins that he needed to, JOK needed to punch out and be underneath that, and they did not get that punch out very well. When the Browns went man, the Steelers had a couple opportunities. They got him on a Jalen Warren throw on a pick play where they moved Warren outside. Taki Taki went with him and chased him inside to tell him it was man. And they put him on the right side of the quarterback and ran him underneath the line and back out the left side, snuck him across. And that resulted in a huge 30 yard gain. And, and that was a miscommunication. Then there was another time Pittsburgh did a switch release that caught Rodney McLeod out of position and Pickens was wide open on a crosser. And he unfortunately, well, fortunately for the Browns, it was uh, behind him from Pickett. The Pickett-Pickens thing drives me nuts. Can't get it right. They uh, missed it. They, they didn't complete it. I thought Pittsburgh did a pretty good job, better job than the Browns did, scheming against man coverage and trying to find open answers. Uh, I'll leave it at that. I thought the linebackers played well. Walker and Taki Taki continue to split 40 and 31 on their snap count number. JOK with 33. You can see how they're diversifying those three and using Delpit and McLeod as Swiss Army Knives down to the line of scrimmage. Just a fun defense right now. Those guys played well. Walk had... And seventy, essentially all three guys were were at a seventy grade, almost identical, sixty nine point eight, and then a sixty nine point three from Walker. They were fun. Jordan Elliott had a pressure in this one, a sixty seven point four, one of his better graded games. Um, Denzel Ward again gets gets the blame for the huge. They give him all seventy one yards of that touchdown, which feels fitting to me. But otherwise, I thought he battled. He was right on Calvin Austin on another catch that I can't believe Calvin Austin caught, and then he he battled Pickens well on some slants too. So it wasn't like a it wasn't a horrible game from Denzel, but that seventy one yard touchdown certainly hurts uh, a little bit of the overall product for him. Juan Thornhill in his debut played fifty four snaps, um, pretty good, right? Um, he had three tackles. I thought he did well tracing some of the flat motion Pittsburgh likes to use with Matt Canada. Uh, very good communicator was where he's supposed to be, and Newsom did a good job too playing the slot. He had. Uh, in this game, 20 slot snaps, which led the group. You had Thornhill with nine, kind of playing down. McLeod, seven. When when Newsom left for a minute there, and then obviously Ward left for a minute, that gave Cameron Mitchell seven snaps uh, as well playing. The slot, Delpit slid down and played the slot six times. So Delpit, 33 snaps in the box, 11 at free safety, and then six in the slot. Some good diversity there. And then um, other guys who would be in the kind of rotating Eight for Thornhill down near the line of scrimmage in the box. 35 at free safety, nine in the slot. And then McLeod of his 12 snaps, I'm sorry, 19 snaps. He had five in the box, six in the at free safety. 
and then seven at slot. So he was um, he was fun. Greg Newsom played inside and out. He played 20 snaps, like I said, in the slot, and then 12 out wide um, if they go base. The Browns didn't play base very much, and there's only five snaps of base, 41 of nickel, and then I said that third down, uh, third down dime. 21 snaps of man coverage, 20 snaps of cover three. With really of those 20 snaps, guys, they played lights out in cover three. The only positive being if you want to chart that 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 touchdown ball is cover three, then that's the only positive. They had, a, they had like an eight-yard gain on a third and long and a, an 11-yard gain there where Jalen Warren snuck out um, and, and they, they just didn't tackle him well on a third and 10. I'm telling you, those 18 other plays were incompletes or negative gains, sacks or losses. They played really lights out stuff in cover three. They played nine snaps of cover two, usually in some long down and distance scenarios. It wasn't very effective for them, though, as five of the ten snaps went for, uh, sorry, five of nine went for ten plus yards. Now two of those were on some really long third longs where the Browns were able to to rally to the football and make a tackle. But, um, you know, they, they didn't have great results when they're looking at the metrics on that. Run defense, your highest mark. Delpit, phenomenal. Four, four tackles playing the run defense, one stop tackle. Walker had three. Tackles, two stop tackles near the line of scrimmage. Shelby Harris, three stop tackles. It's just, again, phenomenal work. They really fit the run so well. They only gave up uh, 2.4 yards per carry in run defense in this one, which was really, really, really special stuff uh, when you're looking at the collective for how they performed run fitting, right? They did give up a couple, like a 21-yard bounce back play that I thought was I thought was very fluky, kind of similar to Jerome Ford. But when you give up 21 carries, 55 yards, and that even includes a 21-yard run, you feel really good about your run defense. And you get great. I mean, Miles has a, uh, above 70. JOK, Okoronkwo, Zadarius. The corners get the lowest marks probably because they're trying to tackle Najee Harris on the perimeter, which is not fun at times. Denzel is a 50. Newsom's a 51.4. Alex Wright and his six snaps was a 53.4. Cam Mitchell and Emerson are at the bottom. Um, but again, if those guys aren't tackling well and everybody else is, you got a pretty good scenario there. So coverage, your highest, sorry, pass rush. Miles is your highest pass rush grade. Hurst, Okoronkwo, Taki Taki, Zadarius, Shelby Harris, and Anthony Walker Jr. All above 70 in pass rush grade. Tomlinson, Wright, and Juan Thornhill because Thornhill had one rush. Um, all above 65, so those are great. Jordan Elliott had 10 pass rush snaps, had a pressure. He gets a 62.0. There's nothing negative to talk about with pass rush. They were in Pickett's uh, backfield quite often. They were condensing the pocket. He did not have many clean throws to make, and due to their ability to put pressure on him, he did not process when things weren't um, chaotic, right, because of the um, ramifications of what we're talking about there where he he's just feeling sort of that innocent pressure that's not even coming. So uh, a really strong job in that field. Coverage marks a little on the lower side. They give Delpit a great score. I think, again, he's right where he needs to be covering well. Ward actually has the second highest one um, despite 114 yards charted as allowed. So that tells you about the coverage grades, which I think for pro football focus are a bit in shambles. Uh, Newsom, uh, I thought, covered well. Martin Emerson gets a 63.6, even though he gave up zero catches. Now, some of this is like if they chart a guy out of position, but the pressure saves them and stuff like that. But I'm watching, and I don't see Martin Emerson really giving up. There's one time on a scramble. I think he came up to cover a, a, a defender in the or a receiver in the flat. He probably needed to stay back, but that's just picking nits. Then McLeod 
gets a low score and Taki Taki get hurt because there were those um, two plays on man coverage where they were schemed up really well. So Taki gets a three for three in his direction, 45. And there's sometimes nothing you can do about that, but uh, can kind of pat the offense on the back. But generally, like I said, I think that the coverage was fine outside of a couple plays where a couple guys maybe jumped too far. And then the one where Ward gets lost, otherwise a uh, pretty strong effort overall. They they probably need to do a little better of disguising their man coverage. I think that the teams are going to start to pick that apart as they find it. The motion from Jalen Warren outside to inside is going to be a little tell for what teams are going to do there. We'll see if Schwartz can um, sort of find a way to combat that because I do think it's going to be something teams are trying to exploit. Special teams, uh, not really much to say about them. I mean, the penalties stunk. Mike Ford had a penalty that wasn't uh, that that really hurt them on uh, a, a fair catch interference or a, I don't know unnecessary roughness late hit. I didn't think Donovan did a great job, you know, catching the football at the ten yard line. Allowed one of those to bounce that he needed to catch. The return game. I mean, again, I don't. I it was. I didn't think Borquest punted all too well. Hopkins missed one kick that stung a little bit, but. Um, you know, he made one from 50-plus. You know, those three points would have been nice to have. But Horquez just, it didn't, like, he's got some ability to re- reverse the field, and it didn't feel like he did a great job with that, where it felt like Presley Harvin, um, his ability to punt two inside, um, you know, down inside the 10-yard line, I think two of that got down inside the 5-yard line, ended up being really, really big plays for them. The Browns didn't have any shifting punts of momentum I didn't think but they they covered fine um you know there was only one kick return and one punt return 14 yard punt return by Austin um Olszewski decided to catch that first kickoff on the sideline I have no clue what that was all about the Browns didn't even have a kick return so these things are getting um you know kind of nullified here and as it should I mean you're getting the ball at the 25 instead of forcing out a return I I didn't think the special teams were great I'd give them a C minus especially in the second half where you had to burn an early timeout after getting a stop because your punt return team had too many guys on the field. The early returns on special teams are not great. Um, Don't, you know, as long as you don't allow them to defeat you in a game, you probably never have them be that big of a deal. As long as Hopkins is making kicks and Bajorquez is punting decently, the return stuff is getting, you know, pushed out and phased out more and more. But you need Donovan to be better at catching some of those balls down at the goal line, uh, making those decisions. That, you know, when you put your heels at ten, making the right call there. But again, I think Presley Harvin did a really nice job. Boswell, the kicker for Pittsburgh, went two of two, um, and his field goals both over fifty. Um, he had a really rough year a few years back, but has bounced back exceptionally well. And um, he made both of his extra points. The Browns went for two a couple times and got both of them. Pittsburgh missed their two-point opportunity. So of all the touchdowns the Browns scored, which were two on offense, they did not kick an extra point. So nothing to talk about there. Again, special teams not, I mean, below average. You need them to be a little bit better, but it didn't It didn't swing this game, the performance on special teams. You know, you like them to make a kick there from Hopkins, but he's going. they're going to miss. Some of those are going to miss every now and again, and you got to be ready to fight back again I just think the lack of the early turnovers the Browns got and they couldn't punch the momentum the way they needed to off of those turnovers is what hindered the early portion of the game and then uh, they just defeated themselves in the second half which was so disheartening it's a game they should have won 
They should have won. If you play it ten times, they would have won nine and a half or something like that. They would have won most of them. And uh, But listen, there are huge things coming for the evolution of this offense. Defense is in a great place. They have a chance to put together another strong performance against the Titans this weekend. But the offense uh, against it, and I don't think the Titans defense is that good, has a chance to get right, but they have to do some soul-searching, some philosophical stuff needs to be discussed, and who they're going to be without Nick Chubb is the single most important part of all of this going forward. So uh, uh, hopefully we see some evolution, but it's tough in a short week to pull that off. But they have no choice, no choice. We will keep you updated at the OBR with everything going on, a lot of moving parts in the decisions uh, coming, right, with with a running back signing potentially or whatever route they go there. We will keep you up to date on that, and there's going to be a slew of injuries that are going to show up on the injury report at the beginning of the week too. And um, you get practice tomorrow. Like I said, it's a short week, and they got to get ready to go because Tennessee's hungry to get a win, um, build on their, their win this week over the Chargers, which was huge for them. So the Browns better be ready. Uh, they better be ready to go. Anyway, guys, the, it's an hour and 20. It's a long podcast, but there was a lot here. And I think the stuff with Andrew at the beginning was just needed, necessary stuff. So we'll be back with another pod for you tomorrow um, for your Thursday. And then all of a sudden it'll be Friday. We're talking about the opponent. And it's going to happen all very quickly. So thanks for stopping by. If you stuck around, uh, I really appreciate you. I say two things on the way out the door every time. Join the OBR for $1 your first month. I think you'll... Really enjoy membership in, in the Breast Browns community and rate and view the pod. That was always uh, something I like to say, as you guys have done a great job doing that. So I appreciate it so much. So, again, um, enjoy your Wednesday. Try to enjoy your Wednesday. Hope this podcast brought you a little clarity or maybe even a little concern about where they're going. There's just some some shifting parts here that you got to talk about when losses like that happen, and I think there will be more to talk about and chew on throughout the remainder of the week. So, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks for stopping by. Appreciate you listening to this podcast as a part of your everyday routine. I'll check in with you on Thursday. Have a great day. Go Browns. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.